Welcome to the FDF podcast, Passionate About Food and Drink. My name is Julie Byers and I'm Public Affairs Manager at the Food and Drink Federation, talking with our CEO, Ian Wright. So I thought it may be interesting if we talk today about the rising use of maybe social media, by, but by extension, the use of online, particularly in the last year with talking with politicians. Has that impacted your communications, our communications with MPs and ministers and Will we ever go back to the day of face-to-face meetings eventually? Well, I do think it, it's it's fascinating that this has pervaded just about every part of everybody's life over the last year, or bit more than a year now, I think it's 15 months. Mm-hmm. I mean, before the 17th of March uh, last year, I very seriously doubt if many of us really had a lot of experience of either the Zoom or Microsoft Teams or those sorts of calls, and usually that experience was based on geographical distance from or, or inconvenience about going to a particular meeting. Um, and now it seems like it's it's most of our meetings are conducted on uh, on video. I think that will change in the next few weeks. Actually, uh, I, for example, tomorrow uh, have a lunch with uh, actually with Emily Thornbury, the um, uh, Labour trade spokesman and uh, spokesperson, and I think it's quite interesting because Emily is one of those people who has not been in the House of Commons uh, over the last few months. Um, she's even though she's a London MP, she's chosen mostly to be at home. Perfectly reasonable decision, but she's obviously now decided that venturing out into the uh, mean streets of Islington is again. I have to say, I'm delighted and very honoured. That, that we're going to have a chance to have lunch together. I, I think there will be some baby steps in the sort of conversations that people have and in the links they have. I'm not sure that we will ever go back to quite how it was before, but I don't think we are necessarily bound for a future that is is more like the, the last few months than it is like a, a mix of what we've had in the last few months and what we had before. So, I mean, I, I hope people are sensible about it. I don't think there is much real uh, substitution that you can do or real um, alternative to proper human contact. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's utterly bonkers for people to be getting on trains or planes to come south unless they've got a, a slew of meetings and some important personal engagement. And I personally can't see why MPs shouldn't be allowed to uh, vote remotely and conduct their business remotely uh, from Westminster if that is more convenient for them in terms of interacting with their constituents. After all, their job is to represent their constituents and it surely is for them to decide how best they can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking in the future we could be going to a hybrid type of meeting system. I was thinking about our um, when the Trade and Cooperation Agreement was first published, and that was over the Christmas holidays, and we quickly convened a briefing for MPs, which got quite a lot of attendance. And I don't think if it was a face-to-face environment, we would ever have that same cut-through. So where that would be useful, just trying to work it out on a case-by-case basis, really. I, I think that's right. Um, I also think that that will be true of, of all meetings, actually. Um, the one thing I would say is that if we're going to do that, we've got to get the technology and the approach to hybrid meetings right. 
because the one thing, one, one uh, sort of very clear observation I have over the last few months is that meetings that are entirely conducted on Teams or on other video systems are infinitely better than meetings where half the people are in a room and the other half are on the screen. And that just has all sorts of difficulties. And it, it, it's partly to do with the technology and partly to do with the, the sort of difficulty of being able to interact in a different way to different people. So you're looking at your colleagues in the room, but you're also looking at people on a, on a screen. And I think that is quite a complicated thing. I'm sure somewhere in the world there's somebody who's got the best practice of that, but so far I haven't heard them. And it'll be interesting to see what, uh, what parliamentary practices come back in September as well. We kind of one of the other online communications we've been doing is a lot more on Twitter that we um, uh, put out our press releases and our comments on there. But actually, more and more MPs are using Twitter. Um, and really, is that a good thing? Well, I don't tweet and I don't look at Twitter for uh, two reasons. One is I don't tweet because I'm, I'm not allowed to by your colleagues in our press team <laughs> because I would. I would be Trump-like in my uh, splenetic engagement with my critics, um, and uh, people don't want me to start a ruck. So uh, I'm not allowed to tweet. And actually, I don't read Twitter. I genuinely don't read Twitter because I've seen such unpleasantnesses on it, some of them about me, that I find them you know, really upsetting. And I have a, a, a son who has the same name as me, who has a, a charming and um, extremely um, loyal willingness to go into bat for his dad. And he gets absolutely uh, dumped upon from a great height by a whole bunch of really horrible, I think probably psychotic people. And so I, I try and persuade him from engaging on that basis, and I don't do it myself. I just think I, there are many, many more things I can do with my time, including the ironing, the washing up, and a whole load of other things, rather than waste my time listening to a bunch of twerps on Twitter. Yeah, I think I'm probably partial to that, just getting into the Twitter bubble. And I, I was thinking, really, how useful it is to get everyone well everyone's opinion, because sometimes it is just a bit of a echo chamber you get to pick on who you follow um but sometimes it does have its benefits um we we did have a viral tweet it wasn't ours it was um adam payne's about our export snapshot which then many mps follow him um and that was actually then picked up in parliament uh in pmqs and cabinet office i think i think twitter is perfectly acceptable as a mechanism for disseminating information as in this press release has been issued. This mm -hmm. interview is really good. This is what this person has just announced. This I, I have no problem with that. It's when it gets into the very short and almost always horrible uh, kind of criticism of people and their motives and their character and their beliefs. And look, I have lots of views of people's beliefs, and I have lots of views of people's um, and people's motivations but I genuinely don't know that anybody really wants to hear them. And I, I was thinking about this with you can't really get into a debate with I think well they increased it to 280 characters but you can only get to a very top line hmm. um, and back about government press releases yeah government put their press releases on there but al almost it's 
the whole really past year or even before that, everything just gets leaked. Journalists put it on Twitter. And one, or I think it was even Matt Hancock last year, tweeting about the Manchester moving into top tier before Andy Burnham had even been told about mm. it. So actually, is it really the best mechanism or should we just go back to the kind of the news and journalists reporting that? Well, I think Jeannie's out of the bottle, isn't mm. it? Um, I mean, but it will, um, it will evolve and other systems and other, other mechanisms, platforms will come up. I mean, I, I had the great good uh, fortune to visit Twitter HQ on the West Coast uh, some years ago. And I did my first tweet from the boardroom at Twitter, which was quite splendid. And I've only done three since. So, uh, but I, it is a very interesting organization. It's interesting. On that trip, we actually went to uh, see Twitter, Google, and Facebook. And we went to their quarters uh, in each case. And it really, really was an real education. I mean, I I liked the guy who was then running Twitter, but I didn't quite think it had the sort of, it's obviously a massive organisation and incredibly valuable, but it wasn't as impressive as Google. I mean, Google was stupendously impressive. And I have to say, I wasn't overly uh, keen on the people we met from Facebook. Although now that my friend Nick Clegg is, is a very senior Facebook person, I'm sure that the, organisations' quality has improved massively. I think why I was wanting to talk about social media and just sort of just online communications generally is because, um, well, particularly in the last year, I've always been very interested in how politicians are talking to one another. And really, it's an interesting one, particularly in the last year, as there's been limited parliamentary time for debate and politicians being taken to Twitter. Um and other social medias to talk to their constituents. And it goes back to what other communications could there be happening in the future? Ways that, well, I suppose there's companies and consumers talking to each other, so companies and politicians. And is there any kind of anticipated trends you see in the future? Well, I think one of the things that this does for a trade association or a representative body like ourselves is it sort of democratises contact. Um, and it does bring cost down fairly massively and it improves access. So as long as you've got someone who's skilled in social media and can keep you up to date with the different platforms mm-hmm. and their usage, I think it's it's a huge boon to organisations like ours because it improves our reach no end. And one of the interesting things about social media is that it, it allows someone who is... Uh, an influencer to develop their profile in a way out of all proportion to the to the impact they can have and to the to previously to the sort of costs you would have required. So I do think from the point of view of an organization like us, if we're creative about how we use it and we're mm-hmm. we're effective, uh, I think it's a, a really big help for us both in terms of reaching our members and reaching our potential members, and you know, we're a commercial organisation. I'm in the business of increasing the membership. I'm incentivised to increase the membership, and I think it's in, you know an entirely desirable thing. Yeah, is that as big as it can possibly be within the the food industry? And one way of doing that is to have our 
profile and our views and our services um, pushed through, pushed on social media so that people can know what we do. But I also think it does allow us, as you said, you know, particularly using the Pay Business Insider example, it allows us to, uh, to reach journalists, it allows us through journalists to reach other uh, people that we're trying to influence. And it does, it does have a huge multiplier impact. The one thing it all depends on is having someone or some people who understand how to develop a strategy on social media. And, and that doesn't just mean what you do and when you do it. It means when you don't do it, mm -hmm. what you shouldn't do and how you don't uh, respond. Or, or, or um, that it's as much about what you don't do as what you do. What you do. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that not everybody gets. So and if you think about it, it's also of a piece with many of the other things that go So another uh, big uh, legacy of lockdown is the fact that we're going to have, we're going to see far more online ordering through supermarkets and retailers. And you, you see that now working its way through and how things are delivered. So you've got these mini delivery companies that are delivering sort of one I saw somebody who charges five pounds to, to deliver a lemon. Um, and uh, those sorts of different services, some of course will go bust very quickly, but those sorts of services are all part of this uh, much more remote uh, world that we remote from physical presence. Presenteeism, I think, is the description of it. Presenteeism is increasingly unnecessary. Which, in my view, doesn't actually necessarily, not absolutely uh, the inexorable rule. For example, one of the things that we're struggling with at the FDF at the moment is the implementation of our new digital platform. So we've invested hugely in a, in a, in a real makeover of our digital platform, our online, our online presence. Uh, over the last couple of years. It's been a, an enormous job for Hannah Christensen-Baker, our, our head of IT, and she and her team have done a really amazing job to get this up and running during the, the pandemic, during the lockdown. But we've just begun to reach a point where what we really need is everybody who is using it, in the FDF staff, to be back together, sitting next to their colleagues and being able to see, oh, that's how you do it, or, that's what I do. Oh, does that work for you? I must try that. And we've got as far as we can go, in my view, with the sort of um, remote training. We now need a kind of immersive experience that has people in teams working together. Uh, and so I can't wait for people to come back to the office on the 21st of June, because I think it will short circuit a lot of the heartache that, that, that is uh, experienced in trying to learn how these systems work remotely. And that's just another part of this whole mm. new world. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if I would pay five pounds for a lemon, but I, I would you very... Need to, be a <laughs> to be honest, you'd need to be a complete crap, wouldn't you, to pay five pounds for a lemon. I mean, that is a triumph of uh, style over substance, it seems to me. There cannot be any single occasion on which a lemon is worth five pounds. Mm. Well, yeah, kudos to whoever... Uh, managed to sell it for that. Uh, well, it's, it's the, the lemon itself costs 14p. Mm -hmm. It's the service that costs you five pounds to deliver it. Yeah. To, to be honest, I was one of these people maybe two or three years ago 
would never pay delivery fee on anything. <laughs> and now I'm like spending two pound fifty to get something delivered. I still, if I'm ordering something else though, I will um, still look for free delivery and I'll shop elsewhere if it'll cost me money. Well, it, it is transforming our food system. Mm. That's that's the that's the other thing. So. You know, so we're now seeing that Deliveroo's future may very well not be in delivering stuff to from the local pizza parlour or from a curry, but may well be in delivering Morrison's uh, grocery bags to people. And I think that that's beginning to be a real influence. I, I think the long-term legacy of, of lockdown for the way we shop, particularly for food, is going to be a whole change in our approach to online ordering and remote and delivery uh, or click and collect which i think has been neglected but may well be a, an equally important um, part of our shopping uh, experience going forward mm-hmm. yeah i definitely think that's probably the way it will go and is continuing to go um i've just recently moved to london and that's definitely where i'm seeing it here i suppose as it kind of proliferates in London and goes elsewhere, we'll see it more. Um, well, you certainly see it also in, well, I mean, I live out in the middle of nowhere in the East Midlands, and what is definitely discernible is that the role of the village shop, so we're, we're seven or eight miles from three, two small towns and 25 miles from Leicester, Nottingham and Peterborough. So, of course, the Ocado or the Tesco or the Morrison's delivery is is open just as much to us as to everyone else. But um, getting delivered, a lot of our neighbours, particularly our more elderly neighbours, mind you, I'm 63, so I don't know how old you have to be to qualify to be elderly, but anyway, um, a lot of our uh, our older neighbours now get delivered from the village shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting that his uh, entrepreneurial skills and flair have been have really been rewarded in the fact that while you could understand why people were doing that during the lockdown, they're still doing it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, his 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 sales through his uh, delivery service have gone up rather than down since lockdown. Mm-hmm. No, that's interesting to hear. I um, I used to work at the Association of Convenience Stores and know that trend that. Kind of even if it was just an independent convenience store, not like a big brand, um, they were trying to work ways to help the local community there. Um, I was just going to ask as well. You mentioned the twenty first of June. That's probably one one thing in the papers at the moment. If it will or won't, do you have any thoughts? Well, I'm 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 on tender like the rest of the country. I think. I've always thought that the Prime Minister will do quite a lot to make sure that the 21st of June is is some sort of liberation day. As we know, he's a man who thinks in pictures, and uh, he, you know, his his. Um, I'm absolutely sure that that picture of him on election night with fists raised as Sunderland as the Sunderland result came in 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 2019 was entirely the one, you know, he, that was the picture he had in his mind all the way through the election campaign. Ditto the picture of him walking into Downing Street. So I think that he will, I think he will do quite a lot to get the 21st of June written into the diaries as the day on which the restrictions end. 
my, my guess is that he would prefer to end social distancing uh, if he has a choice. If he has to make a choice between social distancing and masks, you will go down the uh, route of ending social distancing. And he will do that because it is extremely difficult to make the hospitality industry profitable while social distancing is still in place. It's very difficult to, uh, for, for many pubs and bars to make table service work uh, profitably, and it's extremely difficult for them not to be able to have people standing at the bar because it just completely alters the, the, the cultural experience and, the, and it costs a lot more money. One of the difficulties that we now can see that is writ large across the hospitality sector is a, an acute labour shortage. Uh, and um, it's, it's almost comical that Tim Martin of Weatherspoons, who was the high priest of Brexit, should uh, now be calling for an easier immigration policy because he can't get anybody to serve behind his bar. Um, and I know that one or two, I mean, I'm a member of a London um, club called Century, which is very successful. It's, it's got several bars, got lovely roof terrace, has a nice restaurant. Um, and they've had to shut for six weeks from this weekend because they can't get enough staff. And the staff they are, have, have managed to get simply haven't been trained properly. Uh, and I think I keep hearing this at pubs and bars and other hospitality outlets, restaurants and so on. I think that's going to be a significant problem going forward. And across the whole of the food supply chain, this labour shortage is, is acute. We've got it in customs agents, we've got it in good vehicle drivers, we've got it in logistical drivers. So it's not just the front of house stuff, it's all the people who support the whole delivery and logistics uh, edifice for mm -hmm. hospitality and food manufacturing. And I think therefore the Prime Minister will want to do as much as he can to take some of the burden off that and, therefore, and, and that will be his highest priority. Uh, so I think we will see some pretty significant relaxation on the 21st of June, if you possibly can. Uh, and uh, while that is still some way away, I think he, he is extremely seized of the need to try and deliver on time each of the milestones to which he's committed. Mm -hmm. In a way, interestingly, completely different approach from Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, who has, has been much more willing to be very cautious about uh, how she interprets the data. And I think it's quite fascinating that, that her popularity has not been affected by that much more cautious view. But in the end, the local election results that, that the Prime Minister got were also an endorsement of, of his position. So completely different approaches same uh, result for the popularity of the two politicians concerned. Well, yeah, we'll have to see what happens on the 21st of June. Um, I, I think that there was just uh, uh, news that came out today um, about the increase in uh, the numbers of how many adults have now been vaccinated. I'm still waiting very pa patiently, I would say, but I'm, I'm the next group, so I can't wait to... <laughs> To, they're, they're just teasing me now. They said, uh, if you're 30 by the 1st of July, my birthday's two weeks afterwards. So um, I'm just waited with, uh, waiting with bated breath. Um, well, I shouldn't be too keen to be 30 by the 1st of July. <laughs> but 
there are many compensations to not speaking 30 by the 1st of July, I promise. Uh, so thank you for joining me, Ian. Um, that's been F the FBF podcast, Passionate About Food and Drink. Um, and we'll be back in two weeks.